sermons by D.L. Moody Communion Communion do not shrink from the thought of living in full communion with God. Be decided to let God draw nearer and nearer, and put his holy finger on every detail of your daily life, on every detail of your daily work, on every detail of your daily habits, of your conversation, your reading, your writing. Very small things can hinder full communion with God. Let us be united that our Lord and Master shall have the first place in our hearts. The believer should ever remember that Christ is his life, and that Christianity is nothing less than the living exhibition of Christ in his daily walk. Communion with God among the forms of insect life. There is a little creature known to naturalists which can gather around itself a sufficiency of atmospheric air and so clothed with it, descends into the bottom of the pool, and you may see the little diver moving along dry and at its seas, protected by his crystal vesture, though the water all around be stagnant and bitter. Communion with God, and prayer is such a protector. A transparent vesture, the world sees it not, a real defense, it keeps out the world. By means of it, the believer can gather so much of heavenly atmosphere around him, and with it descend into the putrid depths of this contaminating world, that for a reason. No evil will touch him, and he knows when to ascend for a new supply. Communion with God kept Daniel pure in Babylon. Critics beware love will rebuke evil, but will not rejoice in it. Love will be impatient of sin, but patient, with the sinner. To form the habit of finding fault constantly, is very damaging to spiritual life. It is about the lowest and meanest position, that a man can take. I never saw a man who was aiming to do the best work, but there could have been some improvement. I never did anything in my life. I never addressed an audience, that I didn't think I could have done better. And I have often upbraided myself that I had not done better. But to sit down and find fault with other people, when we are doing nothing ourselves, not lifting our hands, to save someone, is all wrong, and is the opposite of holy, patient, divine love. Love is forbearance, and what we want is to get the spirit of criticism and fault-finding out of the church, and out of our hearts, and let each one of us live, as if we had to answer for ourselves, and not for the community, at the last day. If we are living according to the 13th chapter of Corinthians, we will not be all the time finding fault with other people. Love suffereth long, and is kind. Love forgets itself, and donteed well upon itself. The woman who came to Christ with that alabaster box, I venture to say, never thought of herself. Little did she know what an act she was performing. It was just her love for the master she forgot the surroundings, she forgot everything else that was there, she broke that box, and poured the ointment upon him, and filled the house with its odor. The act, as a memorial, has come down these 1800 years. It is right here, the perfume of that box is in the world today. That ointment was worth $40 or $50, no small sum of those days for a poor woman. Judah sold the Son of God for about $15 or $20. But what this woman gave to Christ was everything that she had, and she became so occupied with Jesus Christ that she didn't think what people were going to say. So when we act with a single life for the glory of our Lord, not finding fault with everything about us, but doing what we can in the power of this love, then will our deeds for God speak. And the world will acknowledge that we have been with Jesus, and that this glorious love has been shed abroad in our hearts. If we don't love the church of God, I am afraid it won't do us much good. If we don't love the blessed Bible, it will not do us much good. What we want, then, 
is to have love for Christ, to have love for his word, and to have love for the church of God. And when we have love, and are living in that spirit, we will not be in the spirit of finding fault, and working mischief. Does God answer prayer? I suppose there has been no word on Christians lips so frequently at this time, as the word prayer. And there is not one in this hall, who has not thought often, during the last 48 hours, of the importance of prayer. During this week of prayer, they are a great many not only thinking about it, but talking about it. When there is a special interest and awakening in the community on the subject of religion, then it is that a great many skeptics and infidels, and a great many mere nominal professors of Christianity, we will not judge them, begin talking against prayer. They say, the author of the world doesn't change his plans because of these prayers. The world goes right on. You cannot move God to change his mind or his doings. You hear this on every side. These young converts hear it. I have no doubt that many are staggered by it, and when you kneel down you say, back quote is it a fact, that God answers prayer. Is there anything in it? I think it would do us good in the week of prayer to take the word prayer, and run through the Bible tracing it out. Read about nothing else? I think you would be perfectly amazed if you took up the word prayer and counted the cases in the Bible, where people are recorded as praying, and God answering their prayers. A great many think it is only the perfectly righteous and pure that pray. But you remember who it was who prayed in this fashion, Lord remember me, when thou comest into thy kingdom. You remember that Christ answered the dying thief's prayer. We cannot but notice that every man of God spoken of in the Bible was a man of prayer. You have therefore very good authority and encouragement for asking God, to hear your prayers, and for praying on behalf of others, as we are daily requested to do. Many are surprised at these requests. But many mothers and fathers are rejoicing that they sent them in the prayers offered up here have been answered, and their children have been saved. Last night I was more confirmed in my views regarding the power of prayer, and ever. This is all excitement, some say, it is got up by earnest appeals that work on the feelings of people, and move their impulses, making them uneasy and anxious. Now, for example, there was nothing said last night, to speak of, and I never was more disgusted with myself than I was on Sunday, night. It seemed, as if I could not preach the gospel, as if my tongue would not speak. But still the number of inquirers was extraordinary. Last night, when there was no speaking at all, and when I just came in, and asked that any inquirers might follow me into the moderator's room, taking a few with me, and expecting to come in, and ask out a few more when I had seen these, the number was so great, that came out without solicitation, that I did not need to return. I saw over a hundred inquirers last night, and there were from fifty to seventy, that I had to close the door on, being unable to see them. A great many who have not been at the meetings at all, have been converted in their own homes. God is working, not we. Oh! That we would keep ourselves down in the dust, and every one of us get out of the way, and let God work. It would be so easy for him, to go into every dwelling in Edinburgh, and convict, and convert ten thousand souls. Look at the sixth verse of the fourth chapter of Philippians. Be careful for nothing, but in everything mark that, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. He doesn't say he will answer all, but he says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. He tells us to make our wants known, to make our requests known to him by prayer and supplication. 
it is right to come and make our requests known. He has told us to come and pray for the conversion of souls. It is said by many people that God does not do anything supernatural in answer to prayer, that the God of nature moves right on and never changes his decrees. Read the first six verses of the twentieth chapter of Second Kings, and see, in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him, and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die, and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall, and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth, and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard by prayer, I have seen by tears, Behold I will heal thee, on the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee, and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Was not that a direct answer to prayer? Hezekiah was only praying for his own life. We are come together to pray for the life of others, and not their temporal but their eternal welfare. He was not praying for Christ's sake, as we now do, but we can come today, and ask God to save the souls of men for Christ's sake, not only for our sake, but for the sake of the beloved Son. He loves to honor, that Son, and to see Christ honored. We can come now, and ask him to save souls, that it might bring glory and honor to the son of his bosom, and glory and honor to the son he delights to honor. I will, he says to Hezekiah, defend the city for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. That is only one instance. Look also at Daniel praying. It was his prayers that took the Jews back to Jerusalem. It was his prayers that turned Nebuchadnezzar to the God of Israel, and brought Gabriel down from heaven to tell him he was greatly beloved. He had power with God. See also how God answered Jacob's prayers and Isaac's prayers. All through the Bible we have records of the answers to prayers. It would be terrible to think that God did not delight to answer prayer. Turn to the 20th chapter of 2 Chronicles. There we read that the Moabites, the Ammonites, and others coming against Jehoshaphat, he was afraid and set himself to seek the Lord, and that afterwards Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. That is what we want, to seek the Lord not only here in the public assembly, but alone. If you have got an unconverted friend, and are anxious that he should be saved, go, and tell it privately to Jesus, and if a blessing does not come, like Jehoshaphat, spend a few days in fasting, and prayer, and humiliation. If one evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee, in our affliction, then thou wilt hear, and help. When I go into the streets, and see the terrible wickedness, and blasphemy, and drunkenness, that is in them, it seems dark, but I look up and think, that God can repel those dark waves of sin and iniquity. Let us pray that God will bless this land of Scotland, bless, and save all the people in it. It would be a great thing for us, but very little for God. May God give us faith. Message delivered by Dwight L. Moody, at the noon prayer meeting, Edinburgh, Scotland, January 6, 1874. Faith I remember a child that lived with her parents in a small village. 
One day the news came that her father had joined the army. It was at the beginning of our civil war, and a few days after the landlord came to demand the rent. The mother told him she hadn't got it, and that her husband had gone into the army. He was a hard-hearted wretch, and he stormed and said that they must leave the house. He wasn't going to have people who couldn't pay the rent. After he was gone, the mother threw herself into the armchair and began to weep bitterly. Her little girl, whom she had taught to pray in faith, but it is more difficult to practice than to preach, came up to her and said, What makes you cry, Mama? I will pray to God to give us a little house, and won't he? What could the mother say? So the little child went into the next room and began to pray. The door was open, and the mother could hear every word, Oh God, you have come and taken away father, and Mama has got no money and the landlord will turn us out because we can't pay, and we will have to sit on the doorstep, and Mama will catch cold. Give us a little home. Then she waited, as if for an answer, and then added, Won't you, please? God, she came out of the room quite happy, expecting a house to be given them. The mother felt reproved. I can tell you, however, she has never paid any rent since, for God heard the prayer of that little one and touched the heart of the cruel landlord. God give us the faith of that little child, that we may likewise expect an answer, nothing wavering. Praising God with one heart we find, the very moment, that Solomon completed the temple, when all was finished, they were just praising God, with one heart, the choristers, and the singers, and the ministers were all one, there was not any discord, they were all praising God, and the glory of God came, and just filled the temple, as the tabernacle. Now, as you turn over into the New Testament, you will find, instead of coming to tabernacles and temples, believers are now the temple of the Holy Ghost. When on the day of Pentecost, before Peter preached that memorable sermon, as they were praying, the Holy Ghost came, and came in mighty power. We now pray for the Spirit of God, to come and we sing, Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening power, kindle a flame of heavenly love in these cold hearts of ours. I believe, if we understand it, it is perfectly right, but if we are praying for him, to come out of heaven down to earth again, that is wrong, because he is already here, he has not been out of this earth 1800 years, he has been in the church, and he is with all believers, the believers in the church are the called out ones, they are called out from the world. And every true believer is a temple, for the Holy Ghost, to dwell in in the 14th chapter of John, 17th verse, we have the words of Jesus, the Spirit of Truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwelleth in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If we have the Spirit dwelling in us, he gives us power over the flesh, and the world, and over every enemy. He is dwelling with you, and shall be in you. Read 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. There were some men burying an aged saint some time ago, and he was very poor, like many of God's people, poor in this world, but they are very rich, they have all the riches on the other side of life, they have them laid up there where thieves cannot get them, and where sharpers cannot take them away from them, and where moth cannot corrupt, so this aged man was very rich in the other world. And they were just hastening him off to the grave, wanting to get rid of him, when an old minister, who was officiating at the grave, said, Tread softly, for you are carrying the temple of the Holy Ghost. Whenever you see a believer, you see a temple of the Holy Ghost. 
In 1 Corinthians 6 19-20, we read again, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God as us are we taught that there is a divine resident, in every child of God. I think it is clearly taught in the scripture, that every believer has the Holy Ghost dwelling in him. He may be quenching the spirit of God, and he may not glorify God, as he should, but if he is a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Ghost dwells in him. But I want to call your attention to another fact. I believe today, that though Christian men and women have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, yet he is not dwelling within them in power, in other words, God has a great many sons and daughters without power. The Qualifications for Soul Winning 1. Shake off the vipers that are in the church, formalism, pride, and self-importance, etc. 2. It is the only happy life to live for the salvation of souls. 3. We must be willing to do little things for Christ. 4. Must be of good courage. 5. Must be cheerful. God had no children too weak, but a great many too strong to make use of. God stands in no need of our strength or wisdom, but of our ignorance, of our weakness. Let us but give these to him, and he can make use of us in winning souls. And they that be wise shall shine, as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness, as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12:3. Now we all want to shine, the mother wishes it for her boy when she sends him to school, the father for his lad when he goes off to college, and here God tells us who are to shine, not statesmen or warriors or such like that shine, but for a season, but such as will shine forever and ever, those, namely, who win souls to Christ, the little boy even who persuades one to come to Christ. Speaking of this, Paul counts up five things, one core. 127-9, that God makes use of the weak things, the foolish things, the base things, the despised things, and the things which are not, and for this purpose, that no flesh might glory in his sight, all five being just such as we should despise. He can, and will use us, just when we are willing to be humble for Christ's sake, and so for six thousand years God has been teaching men, so with an ass's jawbone Samson slew his thousands, Judges 15-15, so at the blowing of ram's horns the walls of Jericho fell, Joshua 6-20. Let God work in his own way, and with his own instruments, let us all rejoice that he should, and let us to get into the position in which God can use us there is much mourning today over false ISMS, infidelity, and the like, but sum them all up, and I do not fear them one half so much as that dead and cold formalism, that has crept into the church of God. The unbelieving world, and these skeptics holding out their false lights, are watching you, and may, when Jacob put away his idols, he could go up to Bethel, and get strength, and the blessing, so will it be with the church of God. A viper fixes upon the hand of the shipwrecked Paul. Immediately he is judged by the barbarian some criminal unfit, to live, but he shakes it off into the fire, and suffers no harm, and now they are ready to worship him and ready to to hear and receive his message, the church of God must shake off the vipers, that have fastened on hand and heart to, ere men will hear. Where one ungodly man reads this Bible, a hundred read you, and me, and if they find nothing in us, they set the whole thing aside, as a myth. Again, a man who has found out what his true work is, winning souls to Christ, and does it, such as the happiest man. Not the richest are this, least of all those who have just got converted for themselves, and into the church, 
lost what pleasure the world could give, and found none other. Job's captivity turned away when he began praying for his friends, and so will all of us work for others shy not in heaven alone, and hereafter, but here, as well, and now. But you say I haven't got the ability. Well, God doesn't call you to do Dr. Bonar's work or Dr. Duff's work, else he had given you their ability, their talent. The word is, to every man his work. I have a work to do, laid out for me in the secret councils of eternity, no other can do it. If I neglect it, it is not true that some other will do it, it will remain undone. And if, for the work laid upon us, we feel we have not the ability or talent necessary, then we have a throne of grace, and God never sends, unless that he is willing to give the strength and wisdom. The instruments he often uses may seem all unlikely, yet when did they fail? When once. And why not? Because he had fitted them out as well. He sent Moses to Egypt to deliver his people, not an eloquent, but a stuttering man. He refuses a while, at last he went, and no man one sent by God ever did break down. So was Elisha a most unlikely man to be a successor to the great prophet Elijah. Men would have chosen some famous man, some professor in the school of the prophets. God took one from the plow, but he gave him what was needed. Elisha had, but to keep by his master to the end, and he received even a double portion of the spirit. And if we want to get it, we too must keep by the Lord, nor ever lose sight of him, should he, as Elijah Elisha, in one way, or another try our faith. And further, we must be ready to do little things for God, many are willing to do the great things. I dare say hundreds would have been ready to occupy this pulpit today. How many of them would be as willing to teach at her tea class in the ragged school? I remember, one afternoon I was preaching, observing a young lady from the house I was staying at, in the audience. I had heard she taught in the Sabbath school, which I knew was at the same hour, and so I asked her, after service, how she came to be there. Oh, said she, my classes, but five little boys, and I thought it did not matter for them. And yet among these there might have been, who knows, a Luther or an Ox, the beginning of a stream of blessing that would have gone on widening, and ever widening, and besides, one soul is worth all the kingdoms of the earth. Away in America, a young lady was sent to a boarding school, and was there led to Christ, not only so, but taught that she ought to work for him, by, and by she goes home. And now she seeks, in one way, and another, to work for him, but without finding how. She asks for a class in her church Sunday school, but the superintendent is obliged to tell her that he has already more than enough of teachers. One day, going along the street, she sees a little boy struck by his companion, and crying bitterly. She goes up and speaks to him, asks him what the trouble is. The boy thinks she is mocking him, and replies sullenly. She speaks kindly tries to persuade him to school. He does not want to learn. She coaxes him to come and hear her, and the rest singing there, and so next Sunday he comes with her. She gets a corner in the school of well-dressed scholars for herself and her charge. He sits and listens, full of wonder. On going home, he tells his mother he has been among the angels. At first at a loss, she becomes angry when a question or two brings out that he has been to a Protestant Sunday school, and the father, on coming home, forbids his going back, on pain of flogging. Next Sunday, however, he goes, and is flogged, and so again, and yet again, till one Sunday, he begs to be flogged before going, that he may not be kept thinking of it all the time. The father relents a little, 
and promises him a holiday every Saturday afternoon if he will not go to Sunday school. The lad agrees, sees his teacher, who offers to teach him then. How many wealthy young folks would give up their Saturdays to train one poor ragged urchin in the way of salvation? Some time after, at his work, the lad is on one of the railway cars. The train starts suddenly, he slips through, and the wheels pass over his legs. He asks the doctor if he will live to get home, it is impossible. Then, says he, tell father and mother that I am going to heaven and want to meet them there. Will the work she did seem little now to the young lady? Or is it nothing that even one thus grateful waits her yonder? Another thing we want is to be of good courage. Three or four times this comes out in the first chapter of Joshua, and I have observed that God never uses a man that is always looking on the dark side of things. What we do for him let us do cheerfully, not because it is our duty, not that we should sweep away the word, but because it is our privilege. What would my wife or children say if I spoke of loving them because it was my duty to do so? And my mother, if I go to see her once a year and were to say, Mother, I am come all this way to discharge what feel to be my duty in visiting you, might she not rightly reply, My son, if this is all that has brought you, you might have spared coming at all. And go on in broken-hearted sorrow to the grave. A London minister, a friend of mine, lately pointed out a family of seven, all of whom he was just receiving into the church. Their story was this, going to church, he had to pass by a window, looking up at which one day, he saw a baby looking out, he smiled, the baby smiled again. Next time he passes he looks up again, smiles, and the baby smiles back. A third time going by, he looks up, and seeing the baby, throws it a kiss, which the baby returns to him. Time after time he has to pass the window, and now cannot refrain from looking up each time, and each time there are more faces, to receive his smiling greeting, till by and by he sees the whole family grouped at the window, father, mother, and all. The father conjectures the happy, smiling stranger must be a minister, and so, next Sunday morning, after they have received at the window the usual greeting, two of the children, ready dressed, are sent out to follow him, they enter his church, hear him preach, and carry back to their parents the report that they never heard such preaching, and what preaching could equal that of one who had so smiled on them. Soon the rest come to the church too, and are brought in, all by a smile. Let us not go about hanging our heads, like a bulrush, if Christ gives joy, let us live it. The whole world is in all matters for the very best thing. You always want to get the best possible thing for your money. Let us show, then, that our religion is the very best thing. Men with long, gloomy faces are never wise in the winning of souls. I was preaching in Jacksonville, and, at the house in which I stayed, my attention was attracted by a little boy who bore a different name from the household, and yet was in all things, and in all respects treated as one of themselves. To the other children he was brother, and they were brothers and sisters, to him, and with them he came up to the mother for the same good night kiss. By and by I asked the lady of the house who it was. She told me the father of the boy was a missionary out in India some years before. Father and mother had come home with their five children to have them educated. After being home a short time, the father resolved to return to India, wishing to leave the mother with the children till their education should be finished. She wanted to go back with him, he opposed to it, saying it was hard enough for him to leave them, for her it must be impossible. 
Still she wished to go, she had received and been some blessing in India, and she would give up even all for Christ. Ultimately it was arranged that the children should be received into various families, treated as part of them, and that father and mother together should return. So with the boy the mother came to this friend's, and stayed a few days along with him. The night before she had leave, sitting with the lady of the house, she told her how anxious she was that her boy should receive the impression that his mother had for Christ's sake cheerfully left him behind, and that for this end she wished to leave him without a tear at parting. The struggle this would cost the lady well knew, especially as the boy was of a peculiarly amiable disposition. Next morning, passing the door of the mother room, the lady overheard a sobbing, struggling prayer for strength to do what was on her heart to do. In a short time the mother came down with smiling, cheerful face, and looking so, she took leave of her boy, to go by rail some miles further on to bid a like farewell to another of her family. She went with her husband to India. A short year after, a still, quiet voice came to her, to come up to meet her Savior. And would not a welcome await her there, who has so loved him here, and so cheerfully served him? They that be wise shall shine, as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness, as the stars forever and ever. Daniel 12:3. The Lord help us as humbly, devoutly, and cheerfully to abound in his work. Sermon delivered by Dwight Howe Moody in Dr. Bonar's Church, Edinburgh, Scotland, the 7th of December, 1873. The unpardonable sin then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind, and dumb, and he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake, and saw, and all the people were amazed, and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself, how shall then his kingdom stand? And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. That is Matthew's account. Now let us read Mark's account in chapter 321 etc. And, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He, that is Christ, is beside himself. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. The word Beelzebub means the Lord of filth. They charged the Lord Jesus with being possessed not only with an evil spirit, but with a filthy spirit. And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself, and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. 
No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now, if it stopped there, we would be left perhaps in darkness, and we would not exactly understand what a sin against the Holy Ghost is, but the next verse of the same chapter of Mark just throws light upon the whole matter, and we need not be in darkness in other minute if we really want light, for observe the verse reads, because they said, He hath an unclean spirit. Now, I have met a good many atheists and skeptics and dyists and infidels, both in this country and abroad. But I never in my life met a man or woman who ever said that Jesus Christ was possessed of an unclean devil. Did you? I don't think you ever met such a person. I have heard men say bitter things against Christ, but I never heard any man stand up and say that he thought Jesus Christ was possessed with the devil, and that he cast out devils by the power of the devil, and I don't believe any man or woman has any right to say they have committed the unpardonable sin, unless they have maliciously, and willfully, and deliberately said that they believed that Jesus Christ had a devil in him, and that he was under the power of the devil, and that he cast out devils by the power of the devil. Because you perhaps have heard someone say that there is such a thing as grieving the Spirit of God and resisting the Spirit of God until he has taken his flight and left you, then you have said, that is the unpardonable sin. Why some fail? We read in John 20:22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Then see Luke 24:49, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But are ye in the city of Jerusalem, until ye be endued with power from on high? The first passage tells us he had raised those pierced and wounded hands over them and breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And I haven't a doubt they received it then, but not in such mighty power as afterward when qualified for their work. It was not in fullness that he gave it to them then, but if they had been like a good many now, they would have said, I have enough now, I am not going to tarry, I am going to work. Some people seem to think they are losing time if they wait on God for his power and so away they go and work without unction. They are working without any anointing. They are working without any power. But after Jesus had said receive ye the Holy Ghost and had breathed on them, he said, now you tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Read in the first chapter of Acts 8 verse, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. Now, the Spirit had been given them certainly, or they could not have believed, and they could not have taken their stand for God, and gone through what they did, and endured the scuffs and frowns of their friends, if they had not been converted by the power of the Holy Ghost. But now see what Christ said, Ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost pasts of the earth. Then the Holy Spirit in us is one thing, and the Holy Spirit on us is another, and if these Christians had gone out and went right to preaching then, and there, without the power, do you think that scene would have taken place on the day of Pentecost? Don't you think that Peter would have stood up there, and beat against the air, while these Jews would have gnashed their teeth and mocked him? But they tarried in Jerusalem. They waited ten days. What? You say? What, the world perishing and men dying? Shall I wait? 
do what God tells you. There is no use in running before you are sent, there is no use in attempting to do God's work without God's power. A man working without this unction, a man working without this anointing, a man working without the Holy Ghost upon him, is losing his time, after all. So we are not going to lose anything if we tarry, till we get this power. That is the object of true service, to wait on God, to tarry, till we receive this power for witness-bearing. Then we find, that on the day of Pentecost, ten days after Jesus Christ was glorified, the Holy Spirit descended in power. Do you think that Peter and James and John and those apostles doubted it from that very hour? They never doubted it. Perhaps some question the possibility of having the power of God now, and that the Holy Spirit never came afterward in similar manifestation, and will never come again in such power, and heard men cursing, and swearing. Some godly woman would pass along the ranks looking for her wounded son, and not an oath would be heard. They would not swear, before their mothers, or their wives, or their sisters, they had more respect for them than they had for God. Isn't it a terrible condemnation that swearing held its own until it came to be recognized, as a vulgar thing, a sin against society? Men dropped it then, who never thought of its being a sin against God. There will be no swearing men in the kingdom of God. They will have to drop that sin, and repent of it, before they see the kingdom of God. How to keep from swearing men often ask, how can I keep from swearing? I will tell you. If God puts his love into your heart, you will have no desire to curse him. If you have much regard for God, you will no more think of cursing him, than you would think of speaking lightly or disparagingly of a mother, whom you love. But the natural man is at enmity with God, and has utter contempt for his law. When that law is written on his heart, there will be no trouble in obeying it. When I was out west about thirty years ago, I was preaching one day, in the open air, when a man drove up in a fine turnout, and after listening a little while to what I was saying, he put the whip to his fine-looking steed, and away he went. I never expected to see him again, but the next night he came back, and he kept on coming regularly night after night. I noticed that as foreditched, you have noticed people who keep putting their hands to their foreheads he didn't want anyone to see him shedding tears, of course not. It is not a manly thing, to shed tears in a religious meeting, of course. After the meeting I said to a gentleman, who is that man, who drives up here every night? Is he interested? Interested? I should think not. You should have heard the way he talked about you today. Well, I said, that is a sign he is interested. If no man ever has anything to say against you, your Christianity isn't worth much. Men said of the master, he has a devil, and Jesus said, that if they had called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more them of his household. I asked where this man lived, but my friend told me not to go to see him, for he would only curse me. I said, it takes God to curse a man, man can only bring curses on his own head. I found out where he lived, and went to see him. He was the wealthiest man within a hundred miles of that place, and had wife and seven beautiful children. Just as I got to his gate I saw him coming out of the front door. I stepped up to him and said, This is Amartilda, I believe. He said, Yes, sir, that is my name. Then he straightened up and asked, What do you want? Well, I said, I would like to ask you a question, if you won't be angry. Well, what is it? I am told that God has blessed you above all men in this part of the country, that he has given you wealth, a beautiful Christian wife, and seven lovely children. 
I do not know if it is true, but I hear that all he gets in return is cursing and blasphemy he said, come in, come in I went in. Now, he said, what you said out there is true. If any man has a fine wife I am the man, and I have a lovely family of children, and God has been good to me but you know, we had company here the other night, and I cursed my wife at the table, and did not know it till after the company had gone. I never felt so mean and contemptible in my life, as when my wife told me of it. She said she wanted the floor to open and let her down out of her seat. If I have tried once, I have tried a hundred times to stop swearing. You preachers don't know anything about it. Yes, I said, know all about it, I have been a drummer. But, he said, you don't know anything about a businessman's troubles. When he is harassed and tormented the whole time, he can't help swearing. Oh, yes, I said, he can. I know something about it. I used to swear myself. What? You used to swear? He asked, how did you stop? I never stopped. Why, you don't swear now, do you? No, I have not sworn for years. How did you stop? I never stopped. It stopped itself. He said, I don't understand this. No, I said, I know you don't. But I came up to talk to you, so that you will never want to swear as long as you live. I began to tell him about Christ, in the heart, how that would take the temptation to swear out of a man. Well, he said, how am I to get Christ? Get right down here and tell him what you want. But, he said, I was never on my knees in my life. I have been cursing all the day, and I don't know how to pray or what to pray for. Well, I said, it is mortifying to have to call on God for mercy, when you have never used his name, except in oaths, but he will not turn you away. Ask God to forgive you if you want to be forgiven. Then the man got down and prayed, only a few sentences, but thank God, it is the short prayers, after all, which bring the quickest answers. After he prayed he got up and said, what shall I do now? I said, go down to the church and tell the people there that you want to be an out and out Christian. I cannot do that, he said, I never go to church except to some funeral. Then it is high time for you to go for something else, I said. After a while he promised to go, but did not know what the people would say. At the next church prayer meeting, the man was there and I sat right in front of him. He stood up and put his hands on the settee, and he trembled so much that I could feel the settee shake. He said, my friends, do you know all about me if God can save a wretch like me, I want to have you pray for my salvation. That was thirty odd years ago. Some time ago I was back in that town, and did not see him, but when I was in California, a man asked me to take dinner with him. I told him that I could not do so, for I had another engagement. Then he asked if I remembered him, and told me his name. Oh, I said, tell me, have you ever sworn since that night you knelt in your drawing room, and asked God, to forgive you? No, he replied, I have never had the desire to swear, since then. It was all taken away. He was not only converted, but became an earnest, active Christian, and all these years has been serving God. That is what will take place when a man is born of the divine nature. Is there a swearing man ready to put this commandment into the scales and step into be weighed? Suppose you swear only once in six months or a year. Suppose you swear only once in ten years. Do you think God will hold you guiltless for the act? It shows that your heart is not clean in God's sight. What are you going to do, blasphemer? Would you not be found wanting?
you would be like a feather in the balance. The fourth commandment remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God, in it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger, that is within thy gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. There has been an awful letting down in this country regarding the Sabbath, during the last 25 years, and many a man has been shorn of spiritual power, like Samson, because he is not straight on this question. Can you say, that you observe the Sabbath properly? You may be a professed Christian, are you obeying this commandment? Or do you neglect the house of God, on the Sabbath day, and spend your time drinking, and carousing in places of vice and crime, showing contempt for God and His law? Are you ready to step into the scales? Where were you last Sabbath? How did you spend it? I honestly believe that this commandment is just as binding today as it ever was. I have talked with men who have said that it has been abrogated, but they have never been able to point to any place in the Bible where God repealed it. When Christ was on earth, he did nothing to set it aside. He freed it from the traces under which the scribes and Pharisees had put it and gave it its true place. The Sabbath was made for man, not men for the Sabbath. It is just as practicable and as necessary for men today as it ever was, in fact, more than ever, because we live in such an intense age. The Sabbath was binding in Eden and it has been in force ever since. The fourth commandment begins with the word remember showing that the Sabbath already existed when God wrote this law on the tables of stone at Sinai. How can men claim that this one commandment has been done away with when they will admit that the other nine are still binding? I believe that the Sabbath question today is a vital one for the whole country. It is the burning question of the present time. If you give up the Sabbath the church goes, if you give up the church the home goes, and if the home goes the nation goes. That is the direction in which we are traveling. The Church of God is losing its power on account of so many people giving up the Sabbath and using it to promote selfishness. How to observe the Sabbath? Sabbath means rest, and the meaning of the word gives a hint as to the true way to observe the day. God made it after creation and ordained the Sabbath as a rest for man. He blessed it and hallowed it remember the rest day to keep it holy. It is the day when the body may be refreshed and strengthened after six days of labor, and the soul drawn into closer fellowship with its maker. True observance of the Sabbath may be considered under two general heads, cessation from ordinary secular work, and religious exercises. 1. Cessation from secular work A man ought to turn aside from his ordinary employment one day in seven. There are many whose occupation will not permit them to observe Sunday, but they should observe some other day, as a Sabbath. Saturday is my day of rest, because I generally preach on Sunday, and I look forward to it, as a boy does to a holiday. God knows what we need. Ministers and missionaries often tell me that they take no rest day, they do not need it, because they are in the Lord's work. That is a mistake. When God was giving Moses instructions about the building of the tabernacle, he referred especially to the Sabbath and gave injunctions for its strict observance, and later, when Moses was conveying the words of the Lord to the children of Israel, he interpreted them by saying that not even were sticks to be gathered on the Sabbath to kindle fires for smelting or other purposes. 
In spite of their zeal and haste to erect the tabernacle, the workmen were to have their day of rest. The command applies to ministers and others managed in Christian work today as much as to those Israelite workmen of old. Works of necessity and of emergency in judging whether any work may or may not be lawfully done on the Sabbath, find out the reason and object for doing it. Exceptions are to be made for works of necessity and works of emergency. By works of necessity I mean those acts that Christ justified when he approved of leading one's ox or ass to water. Watchmen, police, stokers on board steamers, and many others have engagements that necessitate their working on the Sabbath. By works of emergency I mean those referred to by Christ when he approved of pulling an ox or an ass out of a PT on the Sabbath day. In case of fire or sickness a man is often called on to do things that would not otherwise be justifiable. A Christian man was once urged by his employer to work on Sunday. Does not your Bible say that if your ass falls into a pit on the Sabbath, you may pull him out? Yes, replied the other, but if the ass had the habit of falling into the same pit every Sabbath, I would either fill up the pit or sell the ass. Every man must settle the question, as it affects unnecessary work, with his own conscience. No man should make another work seven days in the week. One day is demanded for rest. A man who has to work the seven days has nothing to look forward to, and life becomes humdrum. Many Christians are guilty in this respect. Sabbath traveling take, for instance, the question of Sabbath traveling. I believe we are breaking God's laws by using the cars on Sunday and depriving conductors and others of their Sabbath. Remember, the fourth commandment expressly refers to the stranger, that is within thy gates. Doesn't that touch Sabbath travel? But you ask, what are we to do? How are we to get to church? I reply, on foot. It will be better for you. Once when I was holding meetings in London, in my ignorance I made arrangements to preach for times in different places one Sabbath. After I had made the appointments I found I had to walk 16 miles, but I walked it, and I slept that night with a clear conscience. I have made it a rule never to use the cars, and if I have a private carriage, I insist that horse and man shall rest on Monday. I want no hackman to rise up in judgment against me. My friends, if we want to help the Sabbath, let businessmen and Christians never patronize cars on the Sabbath. I would hate to own stock in those companies to be the means of taking the Sabbath from these men and have to answer for it at the day of judgment. Let those who are Christians at any rate endeavor to keep a conscience void of offense on this point. Sabbath trading There are many who are inclined to use the Sabbath in order to make money faster. This is no nuisance. The prophet Amos hurled his invectives against oppressors who said, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn? and the Sabbath, that we may set forth wheat. Covetous men have always chafed under the restraint, but not until the present time do we find that they have openly counted on Sabbath trade to make money. We are told that many streetcar companies would not pay if it were not for the Sabbath traffic, and the Sabbath edition of newspapers is also counted upon as the most profitable. The railroad men of this country are breaking down with softening of the brain, and die at the age of 50 or 60. They think their business is so important that they must run their train seven days in the week. Businessmen travel on the Sabbath so as to be on hand for business Monday morning. But if they do so God will not prosper them. Work is good for man and is commanded, six days shalt thou labor but overwork, and work on the Sabbath takes away the best thing he has. 
necessary and beneficial the good effect on a nation's health and happiness produced by the return of the Sabbath, with the cessation from work, cannot be overestimated. It is needed to repair and restore the body, after six days.